The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there this morning. Uh, we actually have, I think, three moms in here. And I, I thought I was going to give out prizes this morning of like who drove the furthest could get a prize and maybe the oldest mom and youngest mom, but we won't do that and make you there at home jealous today. But I want to wish happy Mother's Day to the three moms that are in the room here. Uh, my wife is there in the back. And also my own mom might be watching online. So happy Mother's Day, mom. She's out there watching on live stream. So I um, also want to remind you that tonight we have another, uh, all throughout the month of May, we're going to do these um, services out in our parking lot, our east parking lot at 730. It's going to be 730 tonight instead of 7 o'clock. And so this will happen all throughout the month of May, and the idea is to bring our own chair, we're going to social distance, and we're going to be together on those Sunday evenings. And listen, having a Sunday night church service does not mean that we're now Baptist, just so you know there at home. Um, but join us tonight at 7, 7.30 there in the parking lot, in our east parking lot today. So today we are continuing our series, Teach Us to Pray, and we have covered the design of prayer and We talked about movements of prayer, Chase covered last week, prayer is war, and today we're talking about prayer is conversation. And so um, if you can meet anyone in the world, like throughout history, and have a one-hour conversation with that person, who would that person be? Would that be someone who's a current celebrity today? Would it be someone of history from way back when, someone famous? And you can imagine the anticipation that you might feel as you think about anticipating that conversation with that one person for just one hour. And so when you think about those kinds of, those kinds of things, when I think about prayer as conversation, we have access through conversation, the conversation of prayer with God 24-7. And yet, for some reason, we don't have this feeling of anticipation and excitement when it comes to praying to him in this way. So you and I live in this experience culture, an experience-driven culture, and people, if you look at our culture, people value experience over thoughts and ideas much of the time. And so because of this, if, if we talk about experiencing God, if, you, if, you, if you've been in the church for a while, if you, if, you, if you heard people say things like, I just want to experience God, other people might, that might raise some alarm bells or some red flags, and people might look at you kind of funny, oh, what do you mean when you say that? They might say things like, you know, what really matters is belief and doctrine and theology and experience is just too subjective. We can't delve into experience. We see one as logical and rational and as the other is as totally subjective and based on feelings. And as I say that, there might be people that come to mind for you, people that might have right belief and right doctrine, but no love in their heart or someone who is maybe passionate and expressive, but not sure what it is they believe. And usually these two kinds of people, if you find them in the church, they think they need to balance out the other types. They think that, well, I exist over here because of these people over here. I got to balance out uh, the world here. And so we have this tendency in the church, I think, to pit doctrine against experience. But the Bible points us to the idea that we should experience God in a real way. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, says this. Knowing God is more than knowing about him. Friends open their hearts to each other 
by what they say or do, we must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one and could not be a deep relationship between persons if it were not so. So some of us know about God, but the question is, do we really want to know him in this relational and personal way? You know, in my job here as a, as a teacher and as a preacher, I, I can get so bogged down sometimes in books and study. I struggle with, I can struggle seeing God as a subject to be studied instead of a person with whom to relate, instead of a person to be known. I know some of you are maybe getting nervous there and you're wondering, are we going to set aside the Bible for this sermon and focus just on the feelings and just be subjective in how we approach God? And that's not what prayer is conversation means. Prayer is conversation is not setting aside the Bible, but it is to engage with it as never before. So prayer, you might say it like this, prayer is where theology and experience come together. Prayer is how we experience our theology. So when you take these lofty theological concepts and doctrine, and they are so important, when it comes to these ideas, prayer is how those ideas get down into the soul, and we experience God in this way. So if we were, if we were to truly experience God, it's going to happen through his word, meeting him as he is and not as we wish him to be. So God, God has started a conversation through his word, and prayer is how you and I join into that conversation with him. We could call this sermon prayer in the Bible or how his word should impact our prayer lives. So why does God's word have to be central in our prayer lives? Well, without it, you and I are led by, we're led away by our imaginations. John Calvin wrote, They do not therefore apprehend God as he offers himself, but imagine him as they have fashioned him in their own presumption. That is a fancy way of saying that without God's word, you and I recreate God in our own image. So the Psalms, we're going to do the Psalms throughout the summer. The Psalms are one of the best places in the Bible for us to see this relationship between prayer and God's word. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that it's really hard for us to do a, a, a prayer series on a, a prayer series and not delve into the Psalms. I've been trying to hold back in this series and not get into the Psalms too much, but we'll get into that later on in the summer. But if you go to Ephesians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one is one of Paul's longest run on sentences. Paul is known for being wordy in his writings. And one of the best examples of that is Ephesians chapter one, where Paul, over seven verses, it's seven verses and it's one sentence. It's 166 words. My kids are in here in the auditorium and they've been learning sentence diagramming. I would love to see them diagram that. But 166 words, Paul writes, and in the middle of that, and so it can be hard to, we can lose track sometimes of what Paul's getting at because there's so many phrases and, and commas. But in Ephesians chapter one, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes, to the Ephesians, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So what is Paul praying for the Ephesians? Well, if you look at this idea, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's praying that the eyes of their hearts would be opened up and given light. So what does that mean exactly? Well, Paul is praying that they would know him better, that they would experience God in a real way, that what they know in their minds would come to press into their hearts. And so he's, he's praying this idea for the Ephesians that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they would experience in a real way what they know to be true in their minds. Notice what Paul does not pray for the Ephesian people. He does not pray for just changed circumstance. If you look back at the letters of Paul, he will at times pray for that, but what he most often prays for is that they would have a fuller knowledge of God. And so we see this as more important than just change of circumstances. So do you and I, do you and I pray in this way? Do we pray in such a way that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and opened up and pray that what we know to be true in our theology and doctrine would come to bear itself out in our hearts and our souls in this way, in the way that Paul's praying this for the Ephesians? We're going to see this morning how prayer and God's word fit together, and this needs to be our goal as well. So I want you to see a couple of passages on the nature of God's word. Isaiah chapter 55 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I send it. So God compares his word to rain or snow. And I know we're in Texas and you don't know what snow is, but it's white stuff that falls out of the sky. But rain and snow coming down, watering the earth. And when that happens, it can't help but turn seed into fruit and turn seed into grain. So when rain falls here, even in dry and and brown Texas, when rain falls here, things turn green every time. Now, I might go back to the way it was before quickly, but when rain falls, it, it brings about growth every time. And so when God speaks, it brings growth. God's word is action. When you look at, in Genesis, God says, let there be light, and there is light. And so God's speech becomes action in Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, For you and I, word and action are not the same. If you and I walk into a room and if I say, let there be light, nothing happens unless we flip the switch. So for me, word and deed are separate. For God, word and deed are the same. God's word is action. God's word does not return empty. Its nature is that it brings growth. So when you look at our lives as God's word comes down upon us, God's word can't help but bring growth when we're exposed to his word on a regular basis in our lives. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is alive and active. And people will often say, They want to see God moving in their life in a powerful way, but that's not going to happen if we're not immersed in his word because his word is dynamic and it's alive. 
I read one time that D.L. Moody said, he said, I have never found a useful Christian that wasn't a student of the Bible. You know, we talked two weeks ago about the inward movement of prayer, and this is the most painful aspect of prayer because this requires self-examination and reflection that leads to confession and repentance. And we discussed that two weeks ago. This is allowing God's word to cut us open and to expose our sinfulness so that we can repent and turn to Christ. Last week, many of you may have seen this, last week I watched a gruesome documentary about Redskins quarterback Alex Smith. If you remember a couple years ago, his leg was almost torn off by J.J. Watt in a game and a horrific injury. And this documentary details the 17 surgeries that he had to go through after his initial surgery because he got, he got infection, he had flesh-eating bacteria, just some awful things happened to him. And so my family were, were watching this documentary, and whenever they show medical stuff on TV, I have to look away. I can't look. And my kids and my wife, they are looking with eyes wide, and I'm like, how can you watch this? I can't watch this stuff. And so they're showing these gruesome and graphic images of his leg, and as they're having a cut parts of the flesh and muscle out and showing these images on the screen, I'm turning away because there is something in us when the body is cut open in this way, we want to look away. We can't look at it because it just looks grotesque. And when we think about what God's word does to us, this is exactly what God's word does to us. It it flays us open and cuts us deep and cuts us open. And it's It's hard for us to look at what's inside of us when it comes to sin. We want to look away. We want to turn away from it. But God's word helps us do that. God's word cuts us open, not to kill us, but to bring us life. Because it is living and it is active. You know, when people hear certain preachers they like, they'll say things like, you know, he just just makes the Bible come alive. And I know what they mean when they say that, but I heard R.C. Sproul say one time when someone said this about him, he said this, I cannot make the Bible come alive for anyone. The Bible is already alive. It makes me come alive. So we don't make the Bible come alive. God's word brings us to life. So we we don't go to the Bible to get information about God, we go to the Bible to meet God and to know God, not just know about him, but to know him truly. You and I are never going to grow in prayer if we don't grow in God's word. We've got to become immersed in his word. Last night, my wife and my kids got the computer out. I guess it was the, the precursor for Mother's Day. They started feeling nostalgic. They wanted to watch some old videos, some baby videos of them when they were young. We're watching those things. And I, I remember thinking way back when we first had kids, looking at my kids before they could speak when they were just infants and just being blown away at how language works. Imagining them as a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a 17-year-old and just understanding that the way language works is we don't put them in a class. We just immerse them in our language and they begin to pick up words. They, 
they get one word, then they get two words, then they get three words. They begin to string words together in sentences, and they begin to learn how to talk. And pretty soon, they get really good, and they figure out how to complain and how to fight and how to argue, and you wish they could go back to not speaking again, right? But this is how kids learn to speak. They don't learn in the class. They're just immersed in the language of those around them. They get thrown into the deep end, and they get immersed in language, I think we have to learn, we have to learn God's language. And we do that by going to his word. Our prayers should begin to arise from being immersed in God's word, which is his language. And as you and I plunge ourselves into the sea of his word and his language, we begin speaking his language back to him. You begin to see how his word starts to infiltrate your prayers. And his language, his word, influences how you speak to him. So if we're, if we're to see prayer as conversation, how do we learn God's language in this way? Now, this might sound like a controversial term, but I want to introduce you to this concept of, and it's biblical, this concept of meditation. And I know when you hear that phrase, that, that, that word, you picture this. You picture the candles, you picture the incense, you picture the whatever that mat that is, you picture, that's what you picture when you think of meditation, but this is not what the Bible is talking about. This kind of meditation is is to empty the mind or to focus on a word and keep saying the same word over and over and over again until you just empty your mind from thoughts and fears and anxieties, and that's not what biblical meditation is. Biblical meditation is not about emptying, it's about filling, It's about filling your mind and heart with the words of God. Meditation, this concept has been hijacked in our culture. Many people study the Bible and we pray, but we've lost this concept of meditation on God's word. We don't understand it. So before we meditate, we've got to understand what God's word says, which is interpretation. This is called hermeneutics. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into hermeneutics and interpretation right now, but I want to show you how meditation, I think, is another step that we need to do in in our time with God that many of us, including myself, really fail to do most of the time. So before we talk about how to do it, I first want to show you that we should do it. So I want to look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So this is right after the death of Moses. Joshua is commissioned to lead the nation of Israel. And you've got to imagine how how intimidating this must be for Joshua to step into this role, replacing Moses. And He is obviously going to be fearful, and so one of the big themes of the book of Joshua is be strong and courageous. And I want you to see how closely tied being strong and courageous is to meditation right here in this passage. God tells him that the way he's going to accomplish this, you shall meditate on it day and night, my law, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Look how meditation is tied to being 
courageous and conquering fear, but it's also tied to obedience. And their meditation was to be this constant thing. Whenever you and I experience hunger pains, we get hunger pains several times a day, and it's a reminder for us to go eat continuously. And this is how you and I should see God's word. As we feast on his word, we should ache and long and crave it in the same way that we do food. And so God wants his people to meditate on his law. We also see it in Psalm chapter, I did throw in a psalm this morning, Psalm chapter one, verses one and two, where it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm chapter one, which Chase talked about, I think last week, Psalm chapter one, is really an introduction to the entire book, and it's a meditation on meditation. It talks about what meditation on God's word leads to, and so we're gonna, again, start Psalms in a couple of weeks, but I want you to see how the Bible talks about meditation. And notice here, God does not simply want his people to avoid bad behavior, but he wants us delighting in his word, to take joy in it, and that's gonna happen through meditating on his word. Now, this word meditate is an interesting word because it means to, to think deeply and to, to ruminate, to chew on something. I think of chewing up food and ingesting it, and it's more than just knowing something in the mind, but it is to take it inside and make it part of yourself. I think you already see how our culture wars against our ability to meditate and to think deeply about much of anything. When I think of just going through my news feed on a daily basis on my phone, I'll see someone post an article or a passage and start to think about it and ruminate on it, and then it's on to the next thing, and it's it's this person's status or a puppy video, and we're just distracted. And so you can see how our culture has has wars against wars against us when it comes to this idea of meditation. And so Psalm chapter 1 says the person who meditates on God's word is like a tree that's planted by streams of water and as a tree soaks up water from a stream this person soaks up God's word. And this person becomes stable and deeply rooted and they begin to bear fruit even when things are bleak around them. We also see a similar idea in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so Paul speaks of a relationship to God's word that goes beyond just mere understanding. This person takes God's word inside and makes it part of themselves. And look what happens whenever we do that here in Colossians 1. It doesn't just benefit us individually, but it leads to an overflow of teaching and admonishing one another in the body and in community. So you don't just go to God's word and meditate on it so that you and God can just have a moment, but you go so that you can become this overflowing vessel in the body of Christ, teaching and admonishing each other in the body and in community. 
John Calvin once wrote, for the word of God is not received by faith as, as if it flits about in the top of the brain, but when it takes root in the depth of the heart. Again, this idea that, that Christ, we want Christ, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and not just be a head knowledge, but become a part of our being in our hearts and our souls. I know many of us have experienced the difference between just mental agreement and heart change. I mean, you've experienced it, I've experienced it. And we know the difference when something has affected us and impacted our hearts at the deepest level as opposed to just being something that we mentally agree with. As a high school pastor, I've heard, say thing, I've heard students say things like this. You know, I've already heard all this stuff. Give me something new. Usually about junior, senior year, they start to, you know, wonder, okay, what, what is this church thing really about? What should it be about? And begin to maybe, maybe grow, grow bored of some concepts we've been covering for a while. So I already know all this stuff. Give me something new. And they might begin to see God and the Bible as subjects to be studied. And once they understand something, it's time to go to the next thing. And if that's how you view growth in the Christian life, you'll be bored the rest of your life. Much of the Christian life is taking what we know intellectually and asking God to press it deep into our hearts so it changes us and transforms us. So what does meditation look like in our lives? I want to give you a few questions that you can really take to any Bible passage that you're studying as you begin to meditate on it. We're going to post these online just like we did uh, two weeks ago for the uh, movements of prayer. But after reading a passage, here's a few questions that you can begin to ask of any passage. What does this passage say about the God's character, plan, and priorities, and promises and desires as you think about the upward movements of prayer. If you need something to praise God for, begin to ask these kinds of questions when you go to a passage of scripture. What does this passage say about human nature and character and behavior? And as you begin to think of the inward movement of prayer and start to think about, God, what can I begin to confess and turn away from and and repent of? What does this passage say about human nature, character, and behavior? What is the fallen condition on display in this passage? What aspects of God's grace are most evident in this passage? Whenever people read the Old Testament, they tend to think of the Old Testament as, well, the New Testament is grace, Old Testament, not so much. When you read the Old Testament, you start asking the question, what aspects of God's grace are most evident in this passage? You begin seeing grace all over it. You think back to our Abraham series that we just finished. We saw God's grace all over that story. So what aspects of God's grace are most evident in this passage? And are there examples to follow and commands to obey and warnings to hear? And you begin to examine yourself and ask yourself these questions and what are some things that I need to hear about as I read this passage? And then if these truths were alive in my life, how would I live differently? So you begin to flesh out if I take what I studied here and meditate on it and, and ruminate on it and begin to apply it to my life, if these truths were alive in my life, how would I be living differently right now? And then lastly, 
why is God showing me this today? And I'll tell you, it can be amazing sometimes the timing of reading certain passages that God just shows up in some of those moments. And it's amazing to witness sometimes in our lives. Now, asking these questions assumes that you've already done the work of interpretation and understanding what the passage means and what the writer is saying. Meditation does not mean that we play Bible roulette and just ascribe our own meaning to the text. It's not what I'm saying this morning. So what I normally do in my own time with God is I usually read a passage through and I read some study notes to make sure I understand it. Then I start asking these kinds of questions, begin to write down what I see. And remember, it's not a diary, it's a journal. I write them down in a journal. And then when you move into prayer, you begin to see how you have plenty to pray about and talk to God about. I was challenged recently to read a book by this guy, Donald Whitney, who wrote a book called Praying the Bible. And I would recommend it to you. It's a fairly short read. And he shows you how to turn your Bible reading into meditation and prayer. Many times whenever you and I pray, we say the same old things about the same old things, don't we? And so he talks about how to pray the Psalms, how to pray other parts of the Bible, and how to turn what you're reading in God's word, as you learn God's language and you immerse yourself in God's language, he shows you how to turn God's words into prayers as you begin to understand prayers, conversation, and conversing with God in this way. God has given us the Psalms not just to study, but to pray them back to him. It's so hard for us to understand how that God's given us these words in this way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the Psalms are given us to this end, that we may learn to pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. I know someone who is really good at praying God's word in this way and praying while she studies God's word. My wife, who is here in the room with us this morning, she uh, reads her Bible out on our back porch, and I can see her where I read mine is in the dining room uh, or the kitchen area on the, on the dining room table, and I can look out the door and see her I can see the back of her head as she's reading and studying God's word in the mornings. And I can see her from where I sit. And soon I hear her begin to talk, sometimes loudly, and like doing the hand thing as well. And, and I think, who is she talking to? Is she, is she on the phone? Who is she talking to right now? And then I realize that she's praying. That she's praying and she's talking to God. Then I'm, of course, tempted to listen in. You know, is she talking about me? God, please sanctify my sinful husband. And so, but she has taught me by her example this way of praying and being immersed in God's word and letting it inform our prayer lives and influence our prayer lives as she, as she shows that as an example to our family day in and day out, and it's humbling. So whenever we do a series on prayer, I know some of us think, I don't need regular time in prayer. That's just too formal and too legalistic. I'll just pray while I'm driving or when I feel led. But I want to just caution you for a minute on that. Because you and I need regular, focused time in our relationship with God. In the same way that you and I need regular, focused time in our relationship with other people. My wife and I, we try to plan date nights. We've not been good the last two months. 
I don't know why, but we haven't. But we try to plan date nights. And what I've noticed about date nights is whenever we schedule regular, focused, intentional time together, and we have those kinds of conversations, there will be a residual effect the next day, the next week, in our small talk conversations. There seems like there's just more of a freedom in those small talk conversations after we've had some regular, intentional time together in that way. I think the same thing can happen in prayer. You and I need to go to God in regular, intentional ways. And what you'll find is that you'll also, there will be a residual effect when it comes to your pray without ceasing as you pray throughout the day, but you've got to have those regular interactions with God, I think, on a regular basis. Listen, as we encourage you as a, as a congregation to delve into prayer in these ways, you're going to go try it, and your mind's going to wonder. You're going to get bored. You're going to get distracted. It's going to feel like God is absent much of the time. And so what do you pray in those moments? John Owen said this. Sometimes our expressions of grief at the sense of God's absence are themselves ways to show love to God and they will not go unappreciated by him. One of the things we're going to see in the Psalms coming up is the challenge for us to pray honestly. And so whatever is in you, you pray those things to him. It doesn't mean that's where you're going to end up, but you pray those things to him. And you're honest about where you're at with God. And so even expressing the, the, the loss and the grief of not feeling him or not of, of feeling like he's absent is much of what the Psalms are about. And we can pray those things to him as well. You know, last week, after finishing Donald Whitney's book, I never really had been disciplined about praying the Psalms before, and so I just went for a prayer walk, and it was right before our, our Sunday evening service out here in the parking lot. And I just thought, I'm going to go for a run, then go for a prayer walk, and then just pull up the Psalm that was supposed to be the Psalm I was going to read that day, last Sunday. And I go to Psalm chapter 122, verse 1, and I'm feeling the excitement and anticipation of being with the people of God here in the parking lot at TBC. And so the first verse of Psalm 122 says this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And I just thought, how amazing is it whenever you're in these moments and you just immerse yourself in God's word and obviously that passage is not describing what I'm going through in a personal way right now, but just thought, how encouraging is it for us to go to God's word, and when God's word matches the moment, and God can speak to you in a real way. And so I just sat there on the curb in someone's neighborhood and just praised God that we got to gather last week, and we get to gather again tonight. And so we invite you to come and do that with us tonight at 7.30. Let's go ahead and pray together. God, we thank you and praise you that you give us your word. You want us to immerse ourselves in your language so we can speak those words back to you through prayer. We pray, God, that you'd help us understand that and get that and make your word and meditation on your word a part of our daily time with you. God, help us to just remember over and over again how important your word is to us. 
and how powerful it is, how it changes us, and how it grows us. We pray this in your name. Amen.